This is FemPower Health. Each week, top women's health experts dispel fact from fiction. The most important pelvic floor exercise is not the Kegel. Challenge the status quo. It's never easy to challenge the accepted leaders, and especially if you're a woman. Provide perspective on why your healthcare journey may be so tough. All of that fear and worry, it all upregulates our nervous system, puts us into fight or flight mode, and increases our pain sensitivity. And what you can do about it. The number one thing is you have to advocate for yourself, and you have to be prepared. Your journey to get empowered starts now. A lot of that is coming from the normalization of pain in women. We know that most women have some pain with their periods, and that gets projected out to mean women shouldn't complain about their pain. It's normal. They get told that by their sisters, their mothers, their peers, everyone else. Society understands that. Society tells them that the pain is normal. Some of this pain is not normal. If the pain is getting worse, if it's severe, it's not responding to medication, that's not normal pain. Dysmenorrhea, which is essentially pelvic pain during your menstrual cycle, impacts between 16% and 91% of women in their reproductive age. And of these women, 2 to 29% experience severe pain. So today, I interview Dr. Dan Martin, who works with the Endometriosis Foundation of America. And we are here to talk about dysmenorrhea and pelvic pain. And we break down what are the symptoms, why our family members and doctors should not dismiss this pain, and what practical solutions can be. And admittedly, we don't have perfect answers yet because we do need so much more research. But I can assure you that Dr. Martin is quite an expert and incredibly passionate to help women dealing with this situation. So please stay tuned for this episode and listen to what Dr. Martin has to say. So today we're here to talk about dysmenorrhea and pelvic pain. And this is something that happens throughout our years. It can even begin in adolescence. And I wanted to bring you on, Dr. Martin, because I was moderating a panel session that you were on, and we talked about how important it is to educate people early. So really, this discussion is for moms of adolescents, adolescents, and even those who are in their reproductive years and beyond. So before we we really dive in, I wanted you to give an introduction to your background and your passion for helping make sure women truly understand their health and, and your passion around dysmenorrhea and pelvic pain as well. Thank you, Georgie. So I'm Dan Martin, currently the uh, Medical and Scientific Director for the Endometriosis Foundation of America after I retired from, from practice uh, in 2016. I was previously the uh, Divisional Director of Reproductive Endocrinology at the University of Tennessee, and have been a president of two different national medical organizations. I spent most of my life uh, in gynecology, particularly research on endometriosis and pain. Because of that, we understand that for a lot of painful conditions, we have inadequate types of therapy to control all of those women. If, 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 for example, if I have somebody who has a large lesion of the bowel, so let's say something the size of a peanut, or it's not a peanut, but let's say something the size of an almond, 
that you can feel in the bowel and it's tender and we remove that, then it's just like a pimple going away. There's almost instant pain relief. For those kind of women, we have really good control. However, let's make that thing the size of a pimple. You almost can't find it at laparoscopy. MRIs can't see it. Sonograms can't see it. We have to, and so when we try to diagnose those, we usually get those more because we were after something else and they were coincidentally found than because we were after them primarily. Uh, and it, when we get them, that sometimes helps pain relief. And a lot of women with endometriosis, there can be small lesions that cause diffuse pain. When we find small lesions that cause diffuse pain, surgery usually doesn't work. Surgery works for lesions that cause focal pain, not for lesions that cause diffuse pain. And then we wonder, is that because we're not, because it's should, that we should be treating something other than the endometriosis? Is there another disease going on and we've misdiagnosed something else? Or, or we just don't know how to treat endometriosis? The, the complexity of that is really great. So let's talk about like from the beginning, because, you know, I have endometriosis and I know this is not a session necessarily on endometriosis because there's a lot of um, reasons for dysmenorrhea and pelvic pain. But I also, you know, having been part of the community, I hear so many stories of women who are in pain and who are struggling to get diagnosis. And so this is such an important conversation because you've laid out like why it's so hard and putting perspective on why for so many of the women who are struggling to find answers, why it can be hard. So before we, we dive into that dynamic, let's start with terminology. What is the difference between dysmenorrhea and pelvic pain? Okay, so pelvic pain is the larger term. Pelvic okay. pain includes a lot of things. It includes pain with menses, which is dysmenorrhea. It includes pain with sex, which is dyspareunia. It includes just generalized pelvic pain, which means that there's pain everywhere in the, in the pelvis. There are things like acute pelvic pain that we see with cysts and, and, and kidney stones and those kind of things and, and chronic pain that we, chronic pelvic pain that we can see with endometriosis, adhesions, scarring from pelvic infection. What I'm almost hearing is women should really monitor the pain to then help them be able to define it when they go to the doctor. What are the descriptive terms that women should use to describe it, or what are the things they should be monitoring so that when they do go to their primary care doctor, or their OBGYN, it will help that doctor and professional help them. In the 1970s, Arnold Kresh would have, would have taken your question and done a research project on it. And when he did that, he would have found that <laughs> there are no descriptors that are predictive of anything. The predictors, the, the descriptors are so all over the board that it's hard to say. If you look at things like endometriosis and kidney stones, then knowing the location of the pain helps us know where to go. Okay, because so location is one. So okay. somebody can tell me where it is, and if I can find something that's tender in that same spot, then there's a good chance that it's something organic, and organic things would be things like endometriosis, kidney stones, fibroid, ovarian cysts. There are all sorts of things that we can find that are masses that we might be able to find with a sonogram or an MRI, or if we found them on exam, we might be able to find them in laparoscopy. On the other hand, if the pain is diffuse, then either it is something that causes diffuse pain, which, which even endometriosis can, and so can dysmenorrhea, because 
the prostaglandins are activated and there are other things that will cause diffuse pains in spite of the fact that it's focal. But you, you want to you begin to look at something that's more for diffuse problems. And that would be irritable bowels, more diffuse, uh, adhesions and scarring from pelvic inflammatory diseases, more diffuse. What else could possibly help in the description or is that sufficient enough for then the anything, doctor to start? Thing, thing, things that make it worse. Is there something that you recognize as it makes it worse? Do certain foods make it worse? Does your period starting starting make it worse? Is it worse it's at certain times of day? Some people can make sense out of that. Since most of what I did was endometriosis, I was generally more concerned about location, how long it had been there. Okay. Had anybody had a previous diagnosis? Had somebody made a diagnosis in the past? It sounds like there's a lot of people who do, but then there's the question of who actually goes in to see their clinician and why that may be the case. And, and this is really, really important to discuss uh, to, again, continue to add perspective. So tell us about that data. So one of the problems we see in dysmenorrhea and women's pain is it's normalized. But that normalization is based on reality for a lot of women. We can estimate that up to 80% of women have at least mild dysmenorrhea, and you don't want all of them seeing a physician. And we can come back to that later in terms of how they should, everybody should treat themselves in the beginning. But there's about 20 to 40% who have severe dysmenorrhea, and some of those are not going to respond to medical therapy. Of that, 40, 20 or 40% have severe pain, only about 15% actually come in for medical care. That may be limited because some of them are effectively self-medicating. They're treating themselves with non-steroidal anti-inflammatory medications, Tylenol, other things that can help them. Others may not seek care because of the normalization of pain in society. Menstrual problems are sometimes seen as a taboo subject. There is embarrassment, financial cost. They may not have access to pharmacy or they may not have access to transportation to get to a doctor. There are plenty of other concerns. But we do know that of all of those, if they don't improve on non we generally go to try to birth control pills. And if they don't respond to both of those, then the chance they're going to have endometriosis increases to about 80%. So with all patients with dysmenorrhea, it's about 12 to 15% of those are going to have endometriosis. But if they don't respond to initial therapy, it's closer to 80% of them. Wow. Interesting. So the NSAIDs, just in case people aren't clear what those are, can you just describe that just to make sure we're not... So those are things like ibuprofen and okay. uh, naproxen and naproxen and Advil are some of the names of those. Okay. They're first, first line of treatment. They, are, they will decrease the prostaglandin output, which is one of the chemicals that causes pain that's associated with both menses and endometriosis. Okay. So if you try those and they take care of the problem, then generally you're okay. When endometriosis is, if, even if there's endometriosis there, generally when endometriosis is asymptomatic, it doesn't progress. We know that we have at least five to 10% of women in the United States who have asymptomatic endometriosis that they don't need to be concerned about based on tubal ligation studies of a coincidental endometriosis. That's more, that's more than the number of women who will present with pain. So women will either not have pain They'll have infertility, they'll have pain, or some combination of the last two. If uh, they respond to non-steroidals, then the chance they're going to have progressive endometriosis is really low. 
but we worry about it anyway. So if, if the pain keeps coming back, you still want to get evaluated. On the other hand, if they do not respond to non-steroidals in the first three to three months, three or three to six months, or two or three months, not too many months, you don't want to wait long, then it's worthwhile seeing a provider to discuss whether or not you should be on oral contraceptives to suppress estrogens. Estrogens have multiple problems. Estrogens increase inflammation in the body. Inflammation can sensitize pain. And if there's endometriosis there, it can increase its growth and increase its overall problems related to it. So we try to suppress that. If the combination of those two does not work in the first three to six months, then you probably want to consider a laparoscopy to see if there's endometriosis there or some other problem. Prior to the laparoscopy, they'll generally, physicians will generally consider imaging such as sonograms or MRI to see if there's any masses, nodules, cysts, anything else in there that's a concern that can be identified. Let's step back in order here. So I'm taking NSAIDs at home before I see my doctor. What is the dose? Because I would hate for someone to go to the doctor and they could have been helped by taking the right dose. So if we wanted to start before, like, especially if those who can't afford the doctor, let's start on the NSAIDs if you've got the pain and, um, and what would that dose be? Okay. So the only, the only dose I, I know for sure is, 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 is ibuprofen and I guess Advil, is it Advil? Ibuprofen and naproxen, I believe. So Advil is 200 milligrams, naproxen's 275. I believe those are correct doses for. I, let's stick with ibuprofen. I know that one. So okay. for ibuprofen, it is a 200 milligram pill that's over the counter. Right, and you only need so to take one. Well, you have one of those up to four times a day. Ah, okay. And there, there are pharmaceutical varieties of that that are up to 800 milligrams. So if you want to start acting like a doctor at home, you can take up to four of them at a time. Okay. So if one doesn't work and you try two or three and find that works, then by the time you're taking three or four, you probably want to see your doctor, but it at least gives them the information that that's how many it takes. This would be for any type of pain. You start there and then you can go to your doctor if it's not working to then start breaking it apart. Okay. Yes. So then um, the or, next or question. If were, or if it were increasing, you may want to go quicker. Oh, that's true. Of course. So then you go to the doctor. Now, because you are a medical doctor, this is a perfect question to ask you. You know, social media has gotten very loud and based on number of followers and algorithms, certain people come across as louder on social media. And a lot of people are talking about being dismissed by their doctors. And I think helping get your perspective, because I think being in another person's world is so, so important and not making assumptions. So can you comment on how so many women feel dismissed when they go to their doctor and where that is coming from, just so that we can all better understand that dynamic and the role that we can play to make sure we're getting the proper care? A lot of that is coming from the normalization of pain in women. We know that most women have some pain with their periods and that gets projected out to mean women shouldn't complain about their pain. It's normal. They get told that by their sisters, their mothers, their peers, everyone else. Society understands that. Society tells them that the pain is normal. Some of this pain is not normal. If the pain is getting worse, if it's severe, if it's not responding to medication, that's not normal pain. Now, that normalization of pain in society 
extends over into physicians and providers who learn the same thing. And even though physicians and providers should have been taught better, they still act like the rest of society on occasion and they normalize pain and they tend to underestimate the amount of pain that women are having. Uh, if you have a provider who's doing that, you may need to get a provider who specializes in pain, who really has taken time to study it and understand the concepts. There was an old term that I loved and it would parallel what you just said from about 20 or 30 years ago. Physicians tend to reify concepts. And I think reify is a neat name for those of you who understand deify, that you know, deify is making something a God, reifying it is making it a concrete term. It is something that you can believe. People believe things that they got no business believing. And believing that pain is normal in women, nobody should believe that. That okay. is a term that's been reified by society, and we should really avoid making that assumption. When I was younger, it was like whatever doctor said, it's like, yes, sir, yes, ma'am. And I think we're kind of just learning. We're all human and doing the best we can with what we have. And let's face it, there's not a lot of information in women's health. So there you go. Um, so again, patient advocacy and self-advocacy is, um, is really important. Okay, so you've tried the NSAIDs. They're not working. Um, and you go at, at the time you need, if the, pa the pain is increasing, you know, you've tried for three months, things aren't getting better. So you go in for your evaluation. Tell us what a proper evaluation is. So let's first back up just a second. If you're having, sure. you're having severe local pain and it's not getting better, then you sometimes don't want to wait three months. You sometimes want to go quickly. So the worse the pain is, uh, and some of the things you can do at home or home pregnancy tests to make sure you're not pregnant and having a complication of pregnancy, which is one of the ones that's the most worrisome thing if somebody delays it. That and, and if you have a fever, so if, if you have a positive pregnancy test, if you're having fever and you're worried that there's an infection, those kind of things you need to see earlier because that's among the thing, the first things that somebody's going to look for when you go in to see them are things like tubal pregnancy or things like complications of pregnancy, sexually transmitted diseases. Others include things like ovarian cysts, kidney stones, bladder infections, uh, other diseases. So at that first exam, they're going to do some tests on urine, which includes pregnancy, infection. A pelvic exam, sometimes if you don't want a pelvic exam on the first visit, that can sometimes be avoided by looking at some of the other testing. And if an exam is needed, particularly since we were talking about adolescence today, and preservation of virginity is still a big thing for some women, a rectal exam can be used to avoid vaginal exam. Okay. Same thing's true with sonograms. Sonograms don't have to be vaginal. They can be rectal. So sometimes you can avoid vaginal exams. But most commonly, an exam, an abdominal exam, a rectal exam can tell you where you're going. And, and then in a, on occasion, if there's localization, if it feels like there's a mass, then a sonogram, which is like an X-ray or an MRI, a magnetic resonance imaging, may be done if a nodule or a cyst is suspected. Would testing your estrogen levels help give an indication to what might be going on? It's rare that the estrogen levels are high. Okay. It's more common that they're just normal. Okay. So normal estrogen levels is all that it takes to cause the problems I'm talking about. Really? It's rare for them to be high. Or if they're high, you start worrying about granulosa cell tumors and those kind of things. So when you talk about high estrogens, there is a discussion of relatively high 
into in estrogens. So when someone talks about high estrogens and endometriosis, it's not, not they're generally not absolutely high, they're relatively high because endometriosis has lots of biochemical differences between. So when we look at endometriosis, endometriosis is the presence of endometrial type tissue outside of the uterus. Right. Endometrium itself does not have aromatase. It responds cyclically to estrogen and progesterone and has a fairly good response to progesterone. In endometriosis, you get progesterone resistance, which means that no matter how much progesterone you get in there, it doesn't respond to it. And therefore, the estrogen levels are relatively high. So with progesterone resistance, estrogen at normal levels is relatively high with respect to the endometriosis cell. So when, we talk, so when we talk about estrogen, estrogen there's more estrogen dominance than yep. it is high estrogens. Now, I, I interviewed one doctor that talked about the ratio of estrogen and progesterone. Is that something that can be looked at as well to better understand what's going on with, with a woman? We did that routinely in fertility evaluations. So when you're doing an estrogen progesterone ratio, you have to know exactly what day of the cycle it is what you're looking for, because in the first two weeks, there is no progesterone. Correct. All you have is estrogen. Over the next two weeks, the progesterone rises and falls. So you're watching progesterone do this, estrogen yep. doing the same sort of thing. So you're watching a rise and a fall. So you're watching a rise and fall of estrogen, which means that the ratio is a constantly dynamically changing thing. So other than looking at, est- at that and in, in, in my practice, other than looking at that for fertility, estrogen progesterone ratios never helped me or my patients. So then you mentioned like imaging and MRIs and uh, things like that. Tell me how this works, because in all the conferences I've gone to related to endometriosis specifically, I know that I've heard things like you can't fully diagnose endometriosis without a laparoscopy. Some have said that they have figured out ways to do proper imaging I've heard there's 200 experts in endometriosis in the entire world. So how should someone, uh, as a woman, if a doctor is doing these imaging tests, if the imaging finds something else, then it could be that. If it finds nothing, then it's possibly endometriosis. And if they happen to catch it on these imagings, then it is endometriosis. Like, Tell us about that, because this is really, really important, because I have heard many, many women who are misdiagnosed and I definitely raise my hand a lot and say, guys, there are not a lot of endometriosis experts. You cannot just assume like if this person doesn't specialize, they are a general surgeon in OBGYN. And that is very different. So back in the 1980s, I did a series of studies where it took me 200 patients before I could get above a 60% accuracy in diagnosing endometriosis. Wow. With imaging. No, looking at it with a laparoscope. And that's only those lesions that we can see. Remember earlier, we talked about the fact that almost 100% of women with bowel endometriosis have microscopic endometriosis, which you can neither see nor palpate. 75% of those you can't palpate, which means the only time you find them is in research studies or coincidentally when somebody is looking under a microscope. There are lesions in in the retroperitoneum that are similar to that. With a sonogram or an MRI, we can find them if they're five to 10 millimeters or larger. Give us a three centimeter lesion, something the size of an acorn, anybody can find it. 
one centimeter, it takes a good sonographer. Five millimeters, you have to have an excellent sonographer. And the only person I know who's ever picked up a three millimeters up in Canada who does nothing but sonograms on endometriosis patients. So the more experience somebody has, the more chance there is they're going to pick up a small lesion. So large lesions are, are fairly readily seen on most sonograms and MRIs. Small lesions can be missed. When Philippe Koenig looked at what percentage are small and what percentage are large, he found that in infertility patients, two-thirds of them are small, one-third are intermediate, and about 10 or 20 or 30 percent were large. In patients with pain, more than half were small, which means that more than half of the lesions in patients with pain could not be found on a sonogram or an MRI. Then the only thing you can find those for are laparoscopy. And even after a laparoscope, you weren't going to find them all anyway, because some were going to be behind the peritoneum where they couldn't be seen. There's no good way to accurately diagnose all endometriosis. So here's a question for you then. There is a statistic out there that everyone talks about. There's even a hashtag one in 10 on social media. Yeah, sure. yeah. So the data says one in 10 women have endometriosis. And I have yeah. a hard time understanding how that number came up because I think the um, discussion at the first conference I went to on endometriosis held by EndoFound, which was absolutely incredible, was that it would require a clinical trial where every woman is willing to go in for a laparoscopy and they would be tested to see if endo was found. And based on how that trial was designed and all the different nuances, we could maybe better start estimating percentages. So, so can well, you- Well, that, that's, that's part of the study. And then you have to repeat the laparoscope every 10 years for the next 10 years. There you okay. go. Because that 10% is not have endometriosis right now. That 10% is will have, have had, or have. So that's the women are who, who either who either have had it, are having it, or are going to have it in the future. That's a prevalence. If you turn that prevalence into an incidence, then the incidence is the number of women who get new cases every year. So a 10% prevalence over 50 years is about 0.2% per year. So take that, take about a 50, 50 years is just because it's easy to divide with. I forget what the real number is, but it's close to 50 years. But it's about two, two, per, two tenths of a percent per year are going to have it at some point in time. If you look at a primary care physician who sees both men and women and has 1,500 pa patient population, that can be only one or two new endometriosis patients a year. If they're a gynecologist who sees more than that, then you expect they're going to see five or 10 new endometriosis patients a year. Or if it's something, somebody like me who did, who was referred endometriosis patients, let's see, 250 a year. So it's about five per week that I would see five new endometriosis patients a week, every week. So the numbers are, the numbers are one in 10 is a good number for, for somebody who, what's the chance you're going to get to worry about it in your lifetime. But it's not the chance that you got to worry about it this year. Then you get back to the question about symptomatic endometriosis and asymptomatic endometriosis. Okay. Because for asymptomatic endometriosis, it could be two or three or four times that. Sure, it could easily be that asymptomatic endometriosis succeeds 30 or 40%, or that the endometriosis was, remember we talked about infertility patients, more than half don't have pain? 
that's me. I was yeah. no pain. Yeah, you got it. Yeah. And and had infertility. Well, and you would and you wouldn't you wouldn't have suspected it. So and more than half of more than half of patients with endometriosis have no trouble getting getting pregnant. Right. So, so it's a hot mess. Endometriosis <laughs> have no trouble getting pregnant. So that those who have endometriosis and get pregnant who also had no pain, the only time you're going to diagnose them is a tubal ligation. In studies of tubal ligation that are focused, the chance you're going to find it is around 16%, which is a whole lot more than the 10% that we expect with symptomatic endometriosis. Okay. If, we, if, we were to, if we were to look at all that, so that's potentially diagnosable. So 25% is potentially diagnosable, which means that it has gotten out there, it's progressed to a large enough size that it can be diagnosed. This ignores all of those microscopic lesions that we can't see, no matter what we do. So in addition to the potentially diagnosable, there is a reservoir of women who have only microscopic endometriosis that you would never diagnose unless you did some sort of study where you, for some reason, went in there and took out half their body and looked at it microscopically. And I don't think anybody's going to do that. So if we were to get to the bottom line and say, okay, ladies, we just, because when I listen to the guests and there's like all this information, I always think, how can I draw a graph to represent this great information? And I feel like I would draw like this swirly circle of like all this information because it's so hard to digest, right? People have shown those at meetings, yeah. Yeah. And so I guess a question for you then is bottom line as a woman, when should I be concerned? Is it is it just when I have pain and I need to do something? Because we have microscopic lesions and lesions you can see and there's pain, there's not pain, there's fertility issues. Like, so if I were a woman, what do I need to be concerned about when it comes to this? So let's 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 pick three answers. Number <laughs> one, pain that's not responding to treatment. Infertility before you're going to do in vitro fertilization. Uh and the last one is yearly exams, just so somebody checks you for things that they don't find, expect, uh, that they just don't find that you don't know about. The largest lesion I found in somebody who didn't know they had it was a nodule in their bowel, and it was bigger than an ache, bigger than a walnut, so it was about three centimeters in size. It had been found by her family physician who thought she had a cancer. It was that it was it was oh. big. It was, you could see it coming through the vagina. So he had he'd sent her to the to an oncologist who'd done lots of biopsies, showed it was endometriosis. Oh, no. And since this is coming through the vagina, to remove that gives you about a 3% chance of a colostomy because it's bringing your bowel out on your side. So we have this thing that she doesn't know is there. The doctors can find it. We can measure it. We can biopsy it. But if we operate and remove it, then there is a not a really large chance of a colostomy, but at least a 3% chance. And although most of those are temporary and you get put back down at three to six months, sooner or later, somebody's going to have a permanent one. And we just decided to watch it. So for the next seven years, we did MRIs and exams every six months and it never changed. It just sat there. And then she moved to North Carolina and I lost track of her. So I hope that she still never had anything change. There was a series in Italy where there were around 60 or 80 patients with similar findings. And of those, only 6% either grew or developed symptoms. So 94% of women who have asymptomatic endometriosis found on a pelvic exam don't change. They just sit there. So you don't have to do anything unless you're dealing with infertility. 
What about if it's if you have infertility, then do you have to take then, it then, out? Then Bruce has a test called a BL, BLC6, which looks for inflammation. Yep. And if you find inflammation associated with infertility, then the chance you've got endometriosis is, is really high. In one yes. of the studies, it was 26 out of 26. I mean, he's got studies with 100% prevalence of endometriosis when that test is positive. Now, the interesting thing is you can treat it with either hormonal suppression or with surgery. And you get the same pregnancy rates no matter which one you use. If it's me and my body, I would use the hormonal suppression, but the hormonal suppression is that one that half the world hates, which is Lupron. To me, three months of Lupron is much less risky than surgery. Lupron in my practice rarely caused long-term side effects. We had so, some patients who had long-term knee pain from arthritis, but that was about the only thing we got. So a lot of these things that you, that you hear about, these major body dysfunctions related to Lupron, I hate the fact that they occur, but at least they're rare. They're not very common at all. So con con contrasted with some people who get almost total body dysfunction because of Lupron, there are people who die because of the laparoscopies. That's true. So I don't, I've had two of my friends had patients die of fairly normal laparoscopies. We had a patient who almost died having a tubal ligation because they got the aorta and vena cava. And it was only the grace of God that that one's alive for. Uh, she happened to have had it happen in a freestanding surgery center away from a hospital where there's no vascular surgeons. But the reason she's still alive is because six months earlier, a similar case had happened so there was a protocol for what happened when it happens the next time. The first one, the first one, was a, first one was a fairly minor bleed. It was easy to fix. They fixed it. It was real, real exciting for them getting vascular surgeons there. But when the second one happens, the minute it happens, the person it happened to activated the protocol. Fabulous. The chief of anesthesia happens to be rotating through that day. So we got a, a cardiovascular anesthesiologist in the room. And I was two doors over doing, a, doing another laparoscopy just for mild endometriosis. So we've got these people coming in. As it was, a cardiovascular surgeon had, this, had, had was on his way to the golf course. So he was readily available. His partner was available. So within 12, 15 minutes, we've got me and two cardiovascular surgeons and a complete cardiovascular set in that room working. Wow. Had it, had it, had the case not happened six months earlier, I don't think we'd have had all that. And I don't think she survives. I don't like Lupron and I don't like death, but somewhere between the two, you got to make a decision. So if I, if I had a positive BLC six, I know I take the medication because I've been around surgery my whole life and I know the dangers there. Got it. And I mean, I guess that's helpful perspective because there's a lot of advocates who are very, very, very much against Lupron, you know, so it sounds like you're validating that, but it sounds like women are just in a tough position. So what about birth control? Because I, I've, I, I know that for BCL, for the BCL6 study, which is Receptiva DX. There's some uncommon to rare side effects of Lupron that are devastating. Okay. Uh, messes up the immune. Uh, and whether the Lupron actually causes the problem or those were problems that are already there that gets worse while people are on Lupron is whether it's, whether it's truly a cause or an association, we don't know. But, if, but there is concern that, that Lupron could be part of the problem. Uh, and due to that, there, there are plenty of women who just will not ever take Lupron. They encourage people not to take Lupron. The interesting thing is that in spite of those side effects, there's at least one study in which more, almost 80% of people have significant side effects, 
but 60% of those got such good pain relief that they'd encourage people to use it. So you, get, you, get, you get this from both sides coming on. The good thing is we now have a, that was a GNRH agonist. We now have GNRH antagonists that are capable of doing the same thing, that can be titrated better, that uh, have fewer side effects, and we may be able to avoid some of those. And we're waiting to see if the newer versions of that don't actually do the same thing and get and fix it so that we don't have to use it anymore. So ho okay. hopefully we can we can replace Lupron with some of the newer medication so that that's no longer a concern. So we're just waiting word on those. Okay. Yep. When you get it, when you get into treatment and pain, when we get past what a what happens in a normal OBGYN office or in somebody who does endometriosis, you get into all of those supportive measures that get into the things you're talking about, uh, pelvic pain therapy, uh, physical therapists, pelvic pain physical therapists, pelvic floor physical therapists, uh, acupuncturists, biofeedback people, uh, supportive measures, herbal therapy. There are a lot of different things that can be tried in women with chronic pain to try and decrease that pain and help mitigate the problems that neither surgery nor hormonal suppression will fix. By the way, we didn't finish this thought and I apologies for that. There's just so much to talk the birth control pills. So some use birth control pills and I wanted to understand when and why that's used and for whom. And then also I'd love for you to address a lot of people's concerns around the negative impacts of birth control on women, especially the hormonal birth controls. Uh, so, so talk to us about the role of birth control in pain and the hormonal aspects of it. So birth control pills are useful for estrogen sensitive pain because okay. birth control pills will limit the amount of estrogen and decrease stimulation, decrease that estrogen stimulation of anything that's sensitive and things that are sensitive to estrogens include endometriosis, fibroids, adenomyosis, uh, vaginitis, uh, bladder infections. There are all sorts of things that estrogen can, if, if, if estrogen is not appropriately correct, can get worse. So birth control pills are used to suppress that, particularly for endometriosis. It's an easier thing to use than GNRH agonist, but it's like any other, it's like any medication, they have side effects. And some of those side effects include people feeling like they're pregnant, bloating, uh, getting migraines. They can cause uh, high blood pressure and strokes. In a, in a small group of women, particularly in smokers, they've been associated with death. So birth control pills can, can be very scary, but the chance that they're going to cause a major problem is quite small. In my It's small enough that in my practice, I never saw a birth control pill related uh, stroke or, or, uh, or, or severe problem. We, I saw birth control pill associated hypertension, but not, not strokes. I actually did a whole birth control series because um, there's a lot of folks who have concerns. And, and I guess, are there, do you have thoughts around the types of birth control then? Because there's hormonal and non-hormonal and because of the estrogen issue, does it matter what kind of birth I'm control? Not, I'm not sure. I'm not sure what you mean by non-hormonal. Non well, there's the non-hormonal um, IUDs. So it it would have to be the birth oh, control oh, oh, yeah. pill. But the, not, but the non hormonal IUD, yeah, the non hormonal IUDs don't have don't work on endometriosis. Okay. So if you so use a copper, if you use a copper wrapped IUD, it's not, those aren't the ones you use on endometriosis. The one you yep. use for endometriosis 
are the ones that have progesterone into other progesterone related IUDs. Okay. And there's concern that it's not actually progesterone, it's progestin, which is different. We get concerns about whether things are synthetic or, or natural Correct. hormones. Uh, some people are sensitive enough that they can tell the difference. I think that for most, in my practice, most women could not tell the difference. So then you've mentioned um, adenomyosis a few times, and we, you mentioned um, uterine fibroids. So can you differentiate, just so again, we can get clear on terminology of the difference between endometriosis, adenomyosis, and uterine fibroids? Okay, so let's look at the endometrium and adenomyosis and endometriosis because the three are related. So endometriosis is where endometrial-like tissue, the tissue that's normal inside the uterus, gets outside the uterus. Adenomyosis is where that type tissue gets inside the muscle of the uterus. So adenomyosis, so endometrium is in its normal position. Adenomyosis is where tissue like that is found in the muscle wall. It's adenomyosis. Then endometriosis is where it's found outside the muscle wall. Those are contrasted with fibroids, which are the muscle wall muscles growing inappropriately. So adenomyosis is an overgrowth of the muscles that are in the wall of the uterus. And are those easier to treat than endometriosis or is there, are there similar complexities? Fibroids happen in a really large number of women. Yes. And, and most do not need to be treated because they're so small, they're just incidental findings. So small fibroids don't need to be treated at all. Large fibroids can cause compression, they can cause pressure symptoms, they can cause pain, they can cause excessive bleeding and hemorrhage and anemia. So in those situations, you can treat the fibroids and if someone is trying to preserve fertility, the fibroids can be removed. If you're not trying to preserve fertility, hysterectomy may be a better answer. For adenomyosis, when those glands get inside the uterus, the most, if, if, and cause severe, severe cramps or bleeding and anemia, then hysterectomy is generally the most commonly accepted answer. Although there are groups who are trying to resect the adenomyosis out of the uterus without destroying the uterus. And some centers have claimed good success with it. Uh, when we tried to do that, I just, I sat back and could not, could not see that that was very useful in my patients. But that was 15, 20 years ago. Okay, got it. Thank you very much. And, and by the way, for those listening, I do have a separate episode on uterine fibroids uh, from one of the specialists um, at UCSF. And so if anyone wanted to learn more about uterine fibroids, you can listen to that episode as well. So you mentioned also too, that because of all these complications, there's also a delay in diagnosis when it comes to endometriosis, six to 10 years. Some have shown greater than 13 years, which is a certain shame. I guess, are there any other things that you wanted to share about, you know, going back to the pain? I would, I would reinforce something we did discuss and that is don't normalize pain in yourself, in your friends, in your children. It's not, it's not what they need. They need pain taken care of. Thank you so much for that. It's, it's so true. And, And I really appreciate your commitment to this. Um, What's the future here? You know, we, I know I had you on that, that panel where we moderated the session with a bunch of cross-functional experts. Actually, Chris Jackson was there with Receptiva DX working with um, Bruce Lessie. Are you hopeful around us starting to get better answers? On- well, we've got, there's, there's lots of research and a lot of people who think that they've got things that are going to work better. 
there's about 15 or 20 different non-hormonal medications coming out right now. Uh, the list just goes on forever in terms of things that can be used to help with endometriosis and pain. We, in the last year, published almost 2,000 new research articles on endometriosis, about half of which are on treatment. So it's a lot of research going on out there. We can always do more and we keep hoping that they're going to get better answers. Do you think a diagnosis or a um, true understanding of what causes endometriosis is coming out soon? I, I think we have pretty good answers for what causes endometriosis right now. And there are at least four. So if you go back in the 1970s, 1970s, 1970, I was trained that there was one reason we got endometriosis. And by 92, I know we got, got to use, deal with at least two. By the time I retired, it was up to five. And then since I had more time to read, I got it up to 18 over the next three or four years. So, and then I quit counting. Uh, <laughs> there are a lot of things that cause it, but the four most common things that we need to learn how to control, one is retrograde menstruation, which is likely the cause of most endometriosis. So if we can control that, we can do better in terms of taking care of it. The second one is congenital endometriosis where Mullerian rests are sitting there waiting to be activated when somebody gets close to menses. Uh, I don't know how we're gonna stop that one because that means they were born with it. And if they were born with it, the chances, they're born with it. And, and since it happens everywhere in your body, if you're born with it everywhere in your body, you gotta worry about everywhere in your body for the rest of your life. So that's, that's a real devastating theory because I don't know how you're gonna stop somebody from being born with it. At some point they may talk about genetic manipulation and genetic engineering, but right now it looks like only about 50% of endometriosis can be determined genetically. So that, that means you still got half the patients that won't help. The other two things are metaplasia, which means that cells that aren't designed to turn into endometriosis will turn into endometriosis. Most commonly those are things like peritoneal cells or bone marrow stem cells. Uh, if we can stop it, since those have to be activated, if we can stop that activation, then we might have a good chance. But those are the most common things that we think may be causing it. And we have okay. ways to attack three out of the four of them. Got it. The other one, the other one, you just have to wait till it gets big enough and then surgically remove it. Okay. What about a cure? Depends on what you mean by cure. If you mean that somebody has no pain or, or gets, has all the babies they want, then the cure for no pain is hope you have infertility and no pain because then the pain's gone. You didn't have it in the first place. If you have pain, but no, in, but, but no infertility, and if it's a large tender nodule that you can predict where it is, then surgery can cure that type of pain. And depending, depending on what the age was, if we look at the chance somebody's gonna have repeat surgery, then the earlier, the later that surgery happens, the more likelihood there is that they will never have surgery again. If you look at surgery in teenagers, then generally 50 to 80% are going to have surgery again. If you look at surgery in late 30s and early 40s, then less than 15 to 20% of patients have surgery again. So, so it's the timing of the surgery that's really key because the endometriosis well, can come back, right? I, th I think that's too simple. Yeah. That's correct, but I think it's too simple. Okay. Uh, that is correct. The earlier, the earlier, you don't want to delay surgery hoping that you can do it later. Okay. And therefore have a higher success rate. I don't, I don't know that you can, I don't know you can effectively do that because that means you're going to give some, tell somebody just to put up with that pain. I'm not sure that's yep. an answer. Putting up with pain is not a good answer 
All right. Well, I really appreciate you making time for this and, and all the, the work that you've done and, and how you're willing to make time to speak about it and the efforts um, with the Endometriosis Foundation of America. What is a fun fact about you, Dr. Martin, that you are willing to share publicly? I used to be able to solve a Rubik's Cube behind my back without looking at it. What? Yeah. How? It's, it's a mathematical, te- it's a technical thing. It's, Rubik's cubes are technical. The, the moves are technical. It's like, it's like if you've ever watched one of these kids who solve a Rubik's cube in less than five seconds, you realize that after you memorize all the technical aspects, it's just a matter of doing them. But then, but they're telling us that there's like millions of combinations. But the number of moves that it takes to put one back in place is not numbered in millions. So when I when I, I, I trained my, let's see, I taught my, which one, which one did I teach how to do it? I taught when he was six years old. I taught my six-year-old how to, my six-year-old grandson how to fix one. The set of the set of, uh, of uh, instructions I had was about six pages long and it had pictures. And most of the, most of it, and that, was, and most of it was pictures. So he could see what I meant by certain things. I think it's got about 20 or 50 different instructions. It's not, it's not a large number of instructions. Oh my gosh. I want that instruction. For somebody who has math, I was a math geek. For somebody who's a math geek, it's not that big a deal. No, I, I, I 100% got that as soon as you said. uh... I I never understood poetry, but I got math. (laughs) Truly. Thank you so much. And I'll talk to you again soon. Have a great day.